0: Do I live thine? Good evening, everybody. It's still Mother's Day, so happy Mother's Day if I didn't get you this morning. Really glad that you've made the effort to come and be back this afternoon. We have two Bible classes that are going on right now. There is this class that is going to be looking at Genesis through Deuteronomy in this quarter. And then over in the annex, there is a class that's looking at Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptic gospels. So if you're thinking, man, I'd really like to be in that class, you you may go. But I will tell you that next quarter, that class is going to be in here. And then the class material that I'm giving here is going to be given over there. So if you just keep your seat... (laughs) All these classes are gonna make their way to you. That's kind of the design of it. And we've sat down and determined, we're gonna study all the books of the Bible that way in the course of five years. And there are also some pertinent topics that we'll be adding in along the way as well. Same type of schedule. If you just stay put, those classes will come to you. Now, if you insist on just going and following a subject around peace. You can do that. There's no rule against it. Maybe you don't get it the first time. You're like, I don't know. Then perfectly all right. But the design is for the classes to come to you. Now, I, I like to sing to get started. So I want to have a, a song with you. We're going to sing 544. And listen, this is, this is a Bible class. And I intend for this not to be like a, a lecture series. So if you feel like you can interact from way back, there, 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 then you stay put. But if you think, you know what, it might, it might be better if I moved up closer, then please do, okay? Because I'll be able to hear you better. And you never know, uh, sometimes I misunderstand what people say, and it'll cause me to go off on a terrible tangent. Okay, 544, without him, we'll sing this song, and then after that, we will have a prayer and begin our study. Mm-hmm. <laughs> without him I could class participation. See, you're so far away you can't even hear what's going on. All right, let's have our prayer and then we will begin our study. Father in heaven, thank you so much for the blessing of this great day. Thank you for the opportunity you've given us this afternoon to be able to study your word together. Lord, I pray that you'll help me to communicate some very interesting and uh, worthwhile things that I've discovered, and I pray that they can be accepted and assimilated into the lives and the knowledge of these hearers, these students of yours. I pray, Lord, that you'll help us in our overview of these books to really capture as best we can the importance of the books, and to be able to to see them in the bigger picture, to understand the foundational quality of all the things that are written therein. Just thank you, Lord, for the way you look out for us and you make possible our spiritual development. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're going to be talking together about the first five books of your Bible you have looked at those before, you realize that any one of them really for an in-depth study requires individual study. However, for the purpose of our five-year coverage of the Bible, what we're intending to do is look at this section of books kind of in a, a general sort of way, and what I hope to accomplish is A thorough enough introduction or overview of these books and of the important and succinct lessons that they teach that when you read through them that you'll be able to use those kind of as a platform from which you can grow in your knowledge all by yourself so I want to develop if I can kind of a student mentality i want to help us all to appreciate the word of god to instill truths in ourselves and equip ourselves with tools so that we we can study it ourselves so here's the thing i want you to do this is this is your assignment and by the way i gave an assignment to the wednesday night class and people about falling out like what in the world but you know, this is your class. This is not just an opportunity for me to spill some knowledge. This is, this is for your benefit. So you can benefit as much as you intend to. You can gather it up and, and use it. What I want you to do is over the course of these three months together... You take the time to read these books, and honestly, it will not take you very long. In fact, I understand that in Jewish circles among the religious leaders, it was not uncommon for religious leaders to memorize the five books that we're going to be studying. Now, I'm not asking you to memorize them. I'm just asking you to sit down and read through them. And you'll be surprised when you do that, how much you actually will remember that's in those books. And that will be a tremendous benefit to you. But what I want to do is kind of give an overview. Now, I mentioned that there are five books. There are actually two terms associated with those five books. Do you know what they are? One starts with a T and see, you're so far away, you're going to just practically have to yell it at me. Torah. Anybody know what Torah means? Uh. It means law, as you might imagine. It also carries the idea of instruction. So when you hear someone talking about Torah this and Torah that, you're actually dealing with the first five books, which are also referred to as the first five books of the law or the law of Moses. Law typically is shorthand. And by the way, when you're reading through the book of Romans and you read about law, you have to start asking yourself this question because of its audience. Is he talking about general law or is he talking about this, the law of Moses? So you have Torah, law or instruction. And then there's another name for this. Anybody know what it is? And I I gave you a hint by giving you the definition, the first five books of the law. It's the Pentateuch. Pentateuch. Now here's the irony in that. I always thought this was kind of funny. Most people speak of those five books as the Pentateuch. And that word Pentateuch is not a Hebrew word. It's actually a Greek word. Isn't that ironic? So you've got Pentateuch meaning literally five Books. Now, those five books constitute what I described for you, what's considered to be the law. But that's significant too because there is what is referred to as the Hebrew canon of Scripture. And Jesus knew all about that. So, when I say the canon of Scripture, do you know what I'm referring to? Yes, can we do, but we're too far away. So the canon of Scripture is just the combining, the the gathering up. What is considered to be the inspired grouping of books. Now, I mentioned that Jesus knew about that because we're going to see a little bit later, time uh, allowing, that Jesus referred to the law and the prophets. He also referred to the books of poetry. So the law constituted those five books, Torah for the Hebrews, or as we refer to it, the Pentateuch, the five books. And then there's this entire history section in it. And then there's the poetry. So there's a lot that's going into the Hebrew canon. Those first five books kind of separated what were the Sadducees' from everybody else. Because the Sadducees typically believed that the first five books, the books written by the pen of Moses, were the inspired books of God and then everything else didn't matter. That's why I think they memorized only those five books. Everybody else, um, most famously the Pharisees, believed that everything else you believe in the canon of the Old Testament scriptures was scripture itself. And so there's kind of that division. My point there is everybody believes that the Torah, the first five books, the Pentateuch are of absolute necessity. And as you will find out, as you continue studying other books, that every single other book of the Bible depends very heavily upon your knowledge of those first five books. In fact, to study some books requires going back and studying these, at least some of these five books of Torah, the Pentateuch. Now, I want to talk about this first book of the Bible that is, I guess we'll talk about it tonight and then next week, Lord willing. And that is the book Bereshith. You recognize that one? Uh, Bereshith is actually the Hebrew name for the first book of the Torah, of the Pentateuch. The word Beresheth is the Hebrew word, and guess what it means? I will give you a hint, because I hear whispering going on out there, I think, or something walking around in my brain. Something's happening. When you look at the names of these first five books, Actually, what happens is the book is named after the introductory words to the book. So the word Bereshith is the Hebrew word that actually means, do you know what that first verse says? In the beginning, God created the heavens the there. In the beginning, that phrase right there comes from that Hebrew word Bereshith. So you're like, okay, yeah, I got that. But here, let's throw in some irony again. I want to go with the Hebrew word, right? Because that's Hebrew scripture, except that your translation went through a lot of process. And when it finally came into your English translation with all of its headings and titles, you have at the top of the book, yes, a representation of those first words in the beginning, but in a Greek word, Genesis. Let me ask you, what does the word Genesis mean? Yeah, it's not a trick question. Uh, Beginning, right? In the beginning. So I'm thinking, okay, just just from the context itself, in the beginning, we're talking about an origin. It's giving us the origin. Here's what happened in the beginning. Uh, uh, But I'm thinking grander. And here's what I love about the way the Bible does. And that is that there are some things that are very obvious. And then there are some things just simply because it is a quality document. It, it is from the very mind and breath of God that when you even get down to the titling of a book, not only does it, not only does it represent the initial words of that book, but I'm telling you, it represents the entire purpose behind the book itself. And that is a description of various types of, well, guess what? Beginnings or origins. Absolutely. So let's back up from that for a minute and think, generally speaking, about the kinds of origins that take place in this book. For instance, in Genesis chapter 1, you have the origin of what? Everything, right? the universe. You wanna know where the universe came from? Go right there to Genesis chapter one. It's not necessarily debated in that text. It's just expounded. Here is what happened. In chapters one and two, we have the story of us. (laughs) How that God originated or began humankind. He made them male and female. In chapter 3, you have the origin of sin and death. But then working right alongside that, and again, just thinking about the incredible mind of God and how he operates. Not only you have sin and death, but you have redemption's promise in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. So, yeah, there's that tremendous loss initially, but then walking right alongside, step by step, is God's plan of redemption begun right there in that verse. In chapter 3 or chapter 4, you've got well, you've got worship and sacrifice and the origin of that. In chapters 4 through 9, you have the origin of civilization itself. In chapters 10 and 11, the origin of our languages And then from chapter 12 all the way through to chapter 50, which is the remainder of this book, what do those chapters primarily deal with? Abraham and the promise. promise. Absolutely the depiction of the origin of the family of Abraham, the Hebrew nation. And that goes from its very beginning with Abraham. And by the way, he's referred to in that chapter, chapter 12, as Abram the Hebrew. So if there's any question about where the Hebrews came from, they're descendants of Abram, who was from the uh, area of Heber. But that goes from from that initial step in the promises of God all the way to chapter 50, where you have the migration. You begin to see God fulfilling his promises the migration to Egypt in the time of Joseph. So no question about origination in this book. It just seems to me that the title and its contents all kind of work together. Now, what I want us to try to do tonight is look at the message that's found in this book. And and it's a big book, but I I can boil it down to two primary messages that come through And then I also want us to talk a little bit about purposes, and those purposes are threefold. So there's going to be a historical purpose, there's going to be a scriptural, spiritual um, purpose, and then doctrinal, and then there's finally going to be like a Christological, uh, a Christ-centered purpose, and The way that all works together in Scripture, intermingling itself, and the the line that goes from the beginning all the way to the end is just absolutely beautiful. Okay, let's talk about the message of the book of Genesis. I'll tell you that there are primarily two messages that come through. One has to do with the promises that were made to Abraham and their fulfillment. And especially as regards those promises, the level of faithfulness that was associated with Abraham. So far, I was just going to talk about it generally if you're jotting this down. Let's just say that one section, one idea that's flowing through, at least from chapter 12 through chapter 50, is the idea of Abraham's faithfulness. And then the second thing that will start from the very beginning and go through that book all the way to the end of the Bible will be God's scheme of redemption. Okay, now let's back up for a minute and let's think together about Abraham's faithfulness. If I say Abraham was faithful and then I'm going to throw in with his faithfulness the life that he lived plus his descendants to the time of Joseph. Are there some things that just immediately come to mind? Okay, Uh, maybe the thing, in fact, it resulted in a name change. So it goes from being Abram to Abraham, the father of the faithful hinged on the sacrifice of his son Isaac. And you talk about a focal point of scripture, that's going to be one. In fact, when it comes to God offering his own son, Abram's son is classified as an only begotten son. And there isn't anybody who equals that except for guess who? God himself. You say, well now Abram, he he also had Ishmael, he counted that. He he's got all these problems. He does. However, the son of promise is one. The son of promise is an only begotten son. And so that is equated with what God does with his own son. And the parallels are beautiful, isn't it? Because he is going to offer his son Isaac, the son of promise, the seed promise son to God himself. That ultimately you will see is satisfied with Jesus. But yeah, didn't mean to go on about that. But yes, that is true. That is one of the faithful things about Abraham. But now I mentioned, I threw in there, it's not just Abraham, it's also his descendants down through chapter 50. So, how does, how does his faithfulness or the faithfulness of his descendants bear in this book? Things that really just, boom, come to mind. Okay, Noah. Man, Noah would be great, but was Noah a descendant of Abraham? Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> I need a buzzer. <laughs> But Noah, uh, example of great faithfulness. Nod your head this way. Absolutely yes. Okay. Any anybody else out of Abraham, seed promise. In fact, you know Abraham, and then there's Isaac, and then Jacob, on down. Ultimately, we, we ultimately we focus on Joseph. But actually, the descendant through whom Jesus comes is actually the, one of the bad guys, Judah. Right. So all all of those there is a reemphasis generationally upon the promise that God gives that in Abraham's seed all of the nations are going to be blessed okay continually being reminded of that and it seems like just just being a part of the unfolding of that plan results in some decisions on the part of these descendants of Abraham for faithfulness. Now, who would read for us, this is going to seem strange, this text, but it actually is a synopsis of the faithfulness that you found in the book of Genesis that maybe didn't come readily to mind. It is Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to look at verses 17 through 22. Who would just love to read that text? You're just itching to do it. You know, I hate it when everybody tries to do it all at the same time, but who would like to read that? Yes, Hebrews 11, 17 to 22. By faith Abraham, was tried, offered up in Isaac, and he that had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said that in Isaac shall thy seed be called, accounting that God was able to raise him up, even from the dead, from whence also he received him in a big Okay, hold on there for just a second. And I'm going to do this, so when I ask you to read, do not be offended if I say, wait, stop. Okay, because I want to emphasize something. Right there is a very succinct description of what Jim brought out, the sacrifice. But look at the faithfulness of Abraham at this point, right? Abram or Abraham. The, The faith of Abram was so great that if he actually went through with sacrificing his only begotten son, the son of promise, he had such faith in God that if he put him to death, what did he believe God would do? He believed that God would raise him from the dead. Let me ask you this. How many people have been resurrected from the dead at this point? Uh, None, right? What kind of concept is that? Resurrection from the dead. He doesn't doesn't use resurrection like like we think of it, but in his mind, he was so convinced, he was so faithful, so doggedly believing in God that he had thought in his own mind, and you talk about thinking outside the box, right? Never before, kind of like Noah, how, how many times had it rained on the earth before God opened the windows of heaven? It hadn't rained, so Noah has such faith. He believes that God says, "When the rain's coming, it's going to flood there." He believed that God says, "You offer your son Isaac, your only son, your only because of... you say it, I'll do it." He's thinking in his mind, "You know, what? I'm going to kill this boy, but God's promised that I'm going to have seed out of him." So. I, I'm just trusting, well, let's think outside the box. I guess. He's going to raise him from the dead. Okay, keep reading. Jacob Okay, start right there. Isaac is faithful. But what did Isaac do? You say, I don't know that much about Isaac. Isaac kind of that guy that he kind of lays low all the time. But did he have an important role to play? Oh, yes, he did because he had before him. Now watch this. It's clear who Isaac is, but you know who the firstborn in that situation was between Jacob and Esau? It was Esau. Esau was the firstborn son. However, how did the plan of God go? Did it go through Esau? No, Esau sold his birthright. Esau had an opportunity, even though he didn't have the birthright, to get the blessing from his father. And he missed that one too. And it is Isaac who, even when he is in the midst of trickery, is complicit with the instruction of God. Here's what I believe if I'm Isaac. God's going to work this thing out. And so even though I am blind and ha-ha, I've been fooled. And when we look at those texts, we go, Boy, what a deceiver that Jacob was. But I'm telling you, regardless of the details of those events, you know who's in control right here? It is God, and who believed that God would work it out? According to this text, well, right here it's Isaac, right? He's the one involved. He doesn't care. He trusts God. Keep reading. I think Jacob, when he was a dying, blessed both the sons of Joseph and worshiped, leaning upon the top of his back. Okay, stop right there. Can you name the tribes of Israel? Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Asher, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and Benjamin. Wait, you say, stop. Joseph? There is no tribe of Joseph. (laughs) No, there is not. And when you set aside Levi, who was not given possessions, you're actually missing two tribes, right? But you're not missing two tribes because Joseph was represented by what two sons? Ephraim and Manasseh. Whoa! Wait a minute. Blow my mind. Here's Joseph, and much of the story revolves about Joseph and the intrigue of his hateful brothers who wanted to put him to death. But in the final analysis, Jacob did he did he bless Joseph? No, he blessed his sons. How Joseph know? How did Jacob know to do that? Well, because fundamentally, and at its very core, he trusted whom? Himself? I'll, I'll figure this out. No, he trusted in... You could say it. God. Trusted in God. Okay, keep reading. By faith, Joseph, when he died, made mention of the parting of the children of Israel and gave commandment concerning his bones. Why did Joseph give commandment concerning his bones? Why not just leave those bones right here in Egypt? I guess our people will stay in Egypt. When I die, that's where we are. Because there was a promise, wasn't there? There was a promise, Genesis 17 and verse 8, that said, Oh, and Abraham, you see this land that you were in, the land of Canaan? That's going to be your land. That is going to be the land of your people for generations to come, forever. Forever. The intent of God, as long as your people exist, this land is going to be yours. And so here is this, here is this guy who has such confidence in the promise of God that he says, you know, when you guys leave here and go to the promised land, take me with you. Is that some faith? Nod your head this way. Absolutely. It is incredible, incredible faith. Okay, so that is the faithfulness connected with the promise of God relative to Abraham. But there's also a tremendous message here in this this book that has to do with the scheme of redemption. All right, somebody has the privilege of reading the kickoff to that, and that is Genesis chapter three and verse 15. Who would read that text for us? Genesis chapter 3, or Bereshith chapter 3, <laughs> and verse 15. Just trying to throw you off a little bit there. Anybody have that? And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Okay, the seed promise. You say, I promise. Was that promise to Abraham? It is. It's a part of it. Here's the original seed promise. But notice that the seed promise is made about particular seed, like the seed or the outgrowth, the progeny of the serpent, and what would come out of him, which ultimately would be resolved in two lines that the book of Genesis at least follows along for us. There are the sons of men and there are the the sons of God and the daughters of men. They're, They're separated out for us in the text. But ultimately, let's draw back and think for our purposes with the scheme of redemption about the seed of the woman. The seed of the woman. You probably don't get it in your English translation like they would have gotten it in the Hebrew translation. Her seed. Okay, I I don't mean for this to be a biology class, but from what gender does seed typically come? The male, right. The male has the seed, the woman has the egg. Okay, end of biology lesson. When the Hebrews were, the Jews were reading over this text, and it said seed, it was different from any other rendering of seed that they'd ever seen in the Hebrew before. And the reason is this. Every other time you see seed mentioned, it's in the masculine gender. Except right here in this verse. In this verse, it's in the feminine gender. That's unheard of. And yet he just kind of goes along with a promise of what is to be. And the promise is that the woman, not, not in inherit within her an egg to be fertilized, but that it is her seed, her seed, feminine seed. Now, what on earth could that possibly mean? Hebrew scholars at the time, when they read of that, they just probably just glossed right over that. Oh, there's some kind of misunderstanding or somebody stroked the pen wrong. And we just, you know, clearly it's a deal that has to do with descendants. And we know how the story turns out because over there, let's get the primary text from Genesis 22 and verse 18. Right there, that text says that Abraham's seed is going to bless what group of people? The whole world, right? Right? And his seed, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. And still, okay, I get seed, but now it makes sense because that's Abraham's seed. He's having descendants, Isaac, Jacob, on down through Judah and then, then to uh, the, the Messiah, anticipation of Messiah. Okay, so uh, got that, we've got seed. But Isaiah comes along, who would read Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14? What does that text say? Can we can't wait to read it. Let's go. Isaiah 7, 14. Therefore, the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Whoa, well, stop. Wait a second, Jerry. The Lord is going to give you a sign. What, what is a sign? Something that's just out of the... Uh, something that's normal and we see that every day? No, a sign is something that is what? Extraordinary. Unusual. Never seen before. Okay, keep going, Jerry. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name the Wait a second. A virgin is going to be with child? How could that be? Well, the original seed promise said that it wasn't her... Egg. It was her seed. And now we find out that virgin is going to give birth to a son. He's going to be called Emmanuel. Anybody know what Emmanuel means? Okay, God with us. And probably, probably not because you're, you know, Hebrew scholars. Probably because you remember another text. Somebody's going to read for us. Matthew chapter one, beginning verse twenty-one, and just read that to the end of the chapter. Matthew chapter one. Verses 21 to the end of the chapter. Boy, this is full of a lot of good stuff. You shall call His name Jesus. He will save His people from their sins. Okay, stop right there, Aaron. Jesus, that name Jesus means what? Savior. And it's right there in the text. We're going to name Him Jesus because that name means Savior. And he is going to do what? It's not just his name. It's actually what he's going to be. He is going to, he's going to save us from our sins. Okay, keep reading that. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel.
1: Well, stop right there.
0: Who is that prophet he's referring to? We just read from him a moment ago, didn't we? That was Isaiah. Isaiah was keying on the seed promise originally found in Genesis 3, verse 15. And he says, oh, here's what's happening. Now, is Isaiah that smart? Isaiah is not that smart. He's just a, starts with a P. He's just a prophet. And what do prophets do? They speak for God. They foretell the message of God. So God says, way yonder, after all of those promises had been made and the things started to be fulfilled, I says, you get ready, because in about 600 years, this thing is going to come full bloom. Okay, keep reading that text, please. They shall call Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and took his wife but knew her not until she had given birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. He did not have sexual relations with her. She did not receive his seed. Why not? She didn't need it because she had what? She already had within her the, the promised seed, right? That's the whole message of... Of the scheme of redemption. Who in the world, who in the world orchestrated this from the very beginning through all the ups and downs and trials of the history of Israel, even through the subjugation of that people for 300 years under Roman rule to bring about the satisfaction of that promise? Who made that happen? Almighty God did. Yes? No? Yes. Okay, now look at this the purpose there there are there are basically three purposes that are developed related to this book so and here's what i love about the scriptures is you can just you can see them on several different levels for instance you can see it just from a simply historical level a historical purpose that we'll look at here in a second you can look at it from the standpoint of doctrine or a spiritual type of purpose Or you can, through every single book of the Bible, you can see Jesus there, okay? So let's go back to our first purpose. The book of Genesis was written initially and used for a historical purpose. What do you mean by that? Well, you probably know all five of these books, their writing is attributed to the work of Moses, Moses is considered to be the instrument through whom God used to write those books. So Moses wasn't at the beginning. Moses wasn't there with Abraham. Moses wasn't there even with Joseph, who was in Egypt. It was many, many, 400 years later before Moses gets involved. But, but, Moses is acting by inspiration. So scholars begin to ask this question, when in the world did Moses have time to pin these works and then have them such that the people of Israel could use them in a timely fashion? Well, these books, these five books of the Torah or the Pentateuch, these books were written most likely during the period of the wilderness wandering and were finished In time that the people could have them in their possession as they are moving on under the leadership of Joshua to the promised land. Okay, their second effort to go into that land. So during the period of 40 years of wilderness wandering, sometime in that or maybe even all through it, Moses is writing the words of God as they are communicated to him. Maybe those words came as he spent time with God in the tabernacle. I do not know. There's no indication as to exactly when that happened, but we know it did happen because we have these books in our possession. So here is Moses. He's right. Question, why did Moses put together these books? Because the children of Israel are getting ready to go into a land without Moses. So first of all, they are learning from this book that God is the one true God. Why would that be important going into the promised land? Absolutely Absolutely right. If they don't have a strong foundation in their knowledge and, and like Abraham, faithfulness toward God, then guess what? They're going to go into that land. They're going to be impressed with the idolatry of those people. And as was the case with so many of them, they'll be influenced and there'll be a mess. <laughs> which, which if you know the history, that's exactly what happened. Nevertheless, God took steps to make sure that they knew that he was the one true God. This book also, as we have seen already, goes to the purpose of talking about their roots Here's where we are from. We are a special people. We are derivatives of the the lineage of Abraham. We're connected. We are a special people that God has called out of this world. And he is going to make something of us. The promise that he made to our forefathers is going to be satisfied and we're a part of that. So they needed to have that knowledge as they're going into this land. So that they will remain a people, right? Right? It would be so easy to go into a foreign land and just forget who you are, but not so. They knew exactly who they are, they knew their connection with their tribes, and all a big part of what was being uh, shared with them in especially the book of Genesis, kind of the, the beginning of all of that. And then there is that seed promise, and while they didn't while they didn't know what you and I just went through, the knowledge of the scheme of redemption, how the seed promise works, and all of that. Still, they did know, handed down from one patriarch to the next, that they were a part of this promise. God is going to bless all the world through us. And not only that, you know, by the time he gets to Genesis 22, verse 18, he's including everything. And if you go back to Genesis 17 and verse 8, it was even that land promise that's combined in there. So they had a lot vested in, in all of that. And then there is the importance, the realization of not only that land promised, the land of Canaan, which was important to them because they had become sojourners by the time we get to the end of the book, but also just reiterating constantly, God is Faithful. When you read this book of Genesis, you can know from the very beginning when he created man and the sustained man, even when he sinned. And although he kicked him out of the garden, there was grace and there was mercy on God's part. And even though some of the patriarchs committed sin and were unfaithful, still the general tenor of things was their faithfulness. And God continued to be faithful to his promise, even when men weren't faithful. Okay, that's the that's the historical purpose. The doctrinal purpose, we're going to have to throw down in about one minute, but what I want, but I want us to understand spiritually speaking, is not just the faithfulness that God had, but the sovereignty of God. Does anybody know what the word sovereignty means? What does it mean when I say God is a sovereign God? He has all the power. power. So whatever it is that he says, you know, and and I hear this happen in Bible classes a lot of times. Why'd he do that? Why'd he this and why'd he that? You know what? Because he's God. You say, well, I just can't. Woo! Be careful now. We climb up on our high horse of righteousness, and I put about ten question marks after that. I'm going to stand on my righteousness and call God into question. You're looking at somebody who is not going to do that. Why did God do it that? Because he is God. He is sovereign. You say, I just can't, I just can't understand, I can't. No, you can't. No, 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 you probably can't. And look how God operates. He operates through history, not just in the 10 minutes that I would spend trying to understand him, right? God works through history, his story. I always like that breakup. And then I'm just thinking about the, the Christological um, purpose. And, and I'll just throw out some verses for you because our time is up. But you go back to a Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, that's the seed promise, okay? Then you go to Genesis 22 and verse 18, and the promise is with regard to Abraham's seed. But guess what? In the Hebrew, when you read that one, it's also an anomaly. Typically, when you read about seed, you're thinking about a plurality of seed. Actually, when that promise is made to Abraham, he doesn't say as... Seeds as of many, but of one seed. And do you know who that seed is? Galatians chapter 3, verse 16. And that one seed is Christ. Now just let that sink in for a minute. All the specific words that God used to describe the plan that he had unfolded for all of history to save us, It just absolutely blows my mind. Let's pray together and then we'll be dismissed. You can go pick your kids up. Our Father in Heaven, thank you so much for your blessings tonight. Thank you. Thank you for the incredible words that you've written and for how they impact us spiritually. Thank you for this particular study. Help us, Father, to grasp the the wonderful truths that you have here and and just kind of a synopsis, but Lord, we realize there's just so much packed into these these teachings. And I pray you'll help us to understand at least how we fit into that and the lengths that you have gone to to save us. We are so grateful. And I just pray that we'll do the simplest thing, that we will be faithful to you. In Jesus' name, Amen.